Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. And today I'm thrilled to have Mark Khan, who's a founding partner of Omnivore and Impact Venture Fund at Invest in Indian startups to helping breakthrough technologies for food, agriculture, and the rural economy. Mark serves as a director for multiple Omnivore packed startups, including SkyMed, Eruvaka, and Mitra. He earned his bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania and MBA from Harvard Business School, where he graduated as a Baker Scholar. Welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, thank you. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Right. Uh, you know, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast. And uh, you, know, you, you have a very unique story because you, uh, you've uh, done your bachelor's and MBA from US and uh, you got into uh, the Indian ecosystem. So what got you interested about the Indian ecosystem and got you interested to get into, uh, in, 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 into venture capital? So uh, there's a there's a kind of a middle step in that story, which is really about how I got into agriculture, because I'm, I'm sort of an accidental venture capitalist. This is definitely not what I thought I would do with my life. Okay. Um, so I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I actually grew up next to a large Indian neighborhood. Oh. So I've been an Indophile almost my entire life. Oh. Um, I, uh, you know, there was an article in, in, in Mint just a few days ago that kind of talked about this. I, I don't think I'd ever had it on the record before. But yeah, I grew up surrounded by Gujarati and Tambram kids. And uh, I think I saw my first MGR movie when I was about 11. Oh, wow. So um, it, it was a bit like, um, it's, it was the Houston equivalent of growing up in, um, in Jackson Heights in Queens. So, um, you know, came to India originally um, kind of in my college years. Um, really loved it, you know, always thought of it as this part of my personal life um, and my passion, but could never see a path really to working uh, in India. You know, it, it seemed like a crazy idea at the time. I wound up, uh, when I got out of, uh, out of university, working in consulting. And that was where I first started getting exposed to agri and got really interested in agribusiness. And so when I went to Harvard Business School, after a few years of consulting, I was very clear that I wanted to work in agribusiness. That was my future. And while I was at HBS, I used my two years there to learn as much as I could about, about India. So I actually wound up like taking two years of Hindi and you know, um, was one of the first uh, foreigners to ever run the uh, South Asian Association at, uh, at Harvard Business School. But I also um, decided to try to intern with ITC. And so I did a project with them, uh, with Shiv Kumar, right, who is now a, very much an icon. Uh, it, it had to do with uh, a new direction that their Ichopal business was heading in. And I really loved working in Indian ag. I, uh, I worked for Syngenta when I got out of HBS and was there for about two years and did some stuff with, with India at that time. And then in 2007, uh, a batchmate of mine from, from HBS, Nisa Goldridge, called me and said, hey, you know, uh, we have this agribusiness company. We're doing a turnaround on it because it's been struggling. Do you want to come and, and be the, the head of, of strategy and business development? And I jumped on the opportunity and moved to India and been there ever since. And, and so I spent, I spent about uh, six years at, at Godridge Agrivet as an executive vice president um, got to really understand Indian ag. We had a huge business in feed, a very large business in poultry. Uh, we had businesses in agrochemicals and oil palm and seeds and really got to see all of these different sectors. And so I guess about halfway through my time there, I got this idea in my head that it would be very interesting to launch a venture fund that would focus on entrepreneurs in the space. One of the things that I, that I looked at as head of business development was kind of entrepreneurial M&A opportunities and lots of, of agri startups of that era of that vintage pitched us, right? Because traditional VCs wouldn't invest in them. And so I kept seeing deals and interesting deals that we could potentially do. And hence um, basically went and, and found some people to partner with who had VC backgrounds. Uh, my, my, uh, my co-founder, Janesh Shah, who was the CFO of Nexus Venture Partners. And we set up Omnivore in 2011 as the first agri-focused venture fund in India and uh, never looked back. We 
raised a first fund of 260 crore, uh, roughly 35 million in today's dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, now we're, we're managing, um, we fully deployed that fund and we raised a new fund that's almost $100 million and done more than, than 20 uh, investments in, in Indian agritech and have helped this sector to, you know, come from where it was then to where it is now. And it's been a great journey. Right. You know, uh, as, as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a very interesting journey that you have had. And, uh, uh, you know, it's often said that, you know, e-commerce have, uh, has, has, a, has a big time, but it uh, looks like, you know, agriculture, especially with uh, India, which has always been a very agri-focused uh, economy. Uh, do you think the, uh, the, the market size is much bigger than what, uh, you know, the e-commerce business, especially for, uh, you know, uh, for apples and other other sectors, is is agritech, uh, you know, uh, time much bigger than that of e-commerce. I I mean, look the you know the Indian agricultural economy, right? If you right. if you take the whole kind of thing, our agri GDP is about four hundred and fifty billion dollars. Right. Okay. Right. If you you know if you just take for example the value of all of the grain and cotton. And oil seeds and pulses that we produce, that's $150 billion. Um, but you have to understand that agri-GDP is often understated, right? Because it really only talks about that first step of production. It doesn't incorporate all the food processing. Think about our entire textile industry that's dependent on the cotton that we produce, right? right? So if you think beyond agriculture, then think about all of the insurance and the financing. And, you know, if you, if you think about agribusiness, Agricultural GDP is roughly, you know, I would say about 15 to 20% varies of our national GDP. But if you think about all the agribusinesses and the food processing and all of those things that are linked to our production that derives from that agricultural GDP, we're talking about 25 to 30%, right, of India's GDP. Right. And so, yeah, and, and, and roughly half the population being rural. So, yeah, I absolutely think the TAM is right. huge. Right. If you think about the TAMs of, of things, you know, a lot of the TAMs of, of startups that were backed in e-commerce, right, was predicated on, you know, the top 25% of Indian urban consumers, right? I think we're, we're substantially, you know, bigger than that. And it's a huge opportunity. There are many interesting, forgetting about just the massive TAM, right, of, of Indian um, agriculture in general, as a sector, when you start breaking it down, when you think about Indian aquaculture, okay, that's about a $10 billion or $15 billion market, right? So you can find, you know, people always say, VCs always say, I want billion-dollar TAMs, right? And I want, you know, $100 million ARR potential. And I think you can find that right. in many, many, many different spaces in Indian ag. Right, right, very interesting. And uh, you know, you've been in this space for a, for a long time. But you know, I come from from uh, Punjab, and you know, the green revolution of India, you know, really helped Haryana and Punjab. But but what had really ailed uh, the Indian agriculture system? You know, uh, yeah, we also understand that you know. Uh, a lot of that problem also happened because of the Monday system and the middlemen. But, uh, but you know, what had really ailed uh, the agri-tech uh, companies and, you know, what is Omnivore doing to help out farm farmers and the agri-tech startups? Yeah, you know, I think when you ask what ails Indian agriculture, it is a very complicated history, right? And right. a lot of it is rooted in the success of the Green Revolution, right? Yeah. And, but the fact that what, what made the Green Revolution successful, those interventions that were very much required at that moment in history were never undone, right? So, so if you think about kind of Indian ag, what, what's, what's the story in 1947 when the British leave, okay? You still have zamindars, right? You have these huge land holdings. You have massive numbers of poor people and very low productivity in a country that can barely feed itself that had just had a, a British-induced famine during the war, okay? So right. that's the environment we find ourselves in 1947. So what happens from there, right? So the first thing is land reform. We take these large zamindari estates and we break them up into small holdings. Land to the tiller, right? Mm -hmm. we, that, that was a whole movement in the 50s. 
So that's good in some ways, right? Because it gives land to poor people. It gives land to poor farmers. And that was a very positive thing. But fast forward to the present day, and what's the problem? Our average land holding is 1.2 hectares per farmer because the land has been divided and subdivided and divided again and divided again, generation after generation. So some of that reform that was well-intended in, in the present situation is a bit of a curse, right? Let's think about the Green Revolution. What was great about the Green Revolution is that we finally ended our dependency on, on food imports, right? We, we right. got over our technological phobia, right, regarding fertilizer, regarding hybrid seeds, high-yielding varieties, right? All of that stuff was essentially bottlenecked. I'm, a, I, I, I'm one of these people who has tremendous respect for Nehru, but from an agricultural perspective, Nehru was a failure, right? Yep. And, it, and it took, and it really took, um, you know, the, the passing of Nehru and Lal Bahadur Shastri becoming prime minister for the Green Revolution to take hold, for this kind of reflexive anti-Americanism, right? And fear of foreign technologies and agriculture to pass. And then the Green Revolution takes off, okay? What was the Green Revolution based on, right? It was based on high yielding varieties, no real issue there. Okay. It was based on massive usage of fertilizer, which because Indian farmers were poor, we had to heavily subsidize. It was based on irrigation, right? The high-yielding varieties needed irrigation, which limited the Green Revolution to the places that could be heavily irrigated. Hence, Punjab, Haryana, Western UP, and the Kaveri Delta, right? right? So all of these things were well intended at the time. Fast forward to the present, we're giving billions, tens of billions of dollars of fertilizer subsidy, largely to companies in the most convoluted scheme of all time, okay? We continue to have this system of, of what was the Green Revolution procurement system, which eventually became the Food Corporation of India and the MSP system, but where it only really camps out and exists in the original destinations of the Green Revolution. So if you want to get MSP, if you want to sell to the FCI, you better be in Punjab, Haryana, Western UP, the Kaveri Delta, and very few other places besides that, right? So we have this legacy system that was never dismantled that continues to be, you know, this immensely wasteful, it was a system that was designed for scarcity, agricultural scarcity. What do we have in India today is what every other country, every other modernizing country in the world has, which is agricultural surplus. We have 90 million metric tons of grain rotting in FCI go-downs right now, right? We are net exporters of wheat and rice. The whole balance of trade in agriculture flipped, but we never changed the policies, right? We never changed the system, right? And then obviously we have this stuff that's just been reformed around storing commodities and selling commodities, where again, right, it, it's, it's, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So in the 1950s and 60s, you create these laws with the idea of, okay, hoarding is a problem, we have to punish hoarders, therefore, Essential Commodities Act, right? Or farmers, they're vulnerable, they're small, therefore, we need to create protected public monopolies in the form of APMC and Monday to make sure the farmer doesn't get ripped off, okay? Fast forward, to 2020. What is the ECA? The ECA is the greatest impediment to investment in agricultural infrastructure in India because every large player says, I don't want to invest in this because I'll be told I'm a hoarder and then I can go to jail. On the other side, right, what are the mundis which started out well-intentioned to protect farmers? They are essentially rent-seeking, bureaucracy-protected, right, highly corrupt, anti-farmer, you know, many local monopolies. And so all of these things that were, that were very critical, to be clear, like no, no hatred on the intentions of these laws in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Once, we, once the system flipped, once we went from being a, you know, a food deficit country to a food surplus country, these things aren't helping us anymore, right? They're holding us back and they're hurting our farmers, right? You, you're from Punjab. Right? I have a, right. a friend who jokes that farmers in Punjab are not farmers. They're just subsidy collectors. Right. Okay? What do they do? What, what is farming in Punjab? I mean, please, you know, don't send this to the Akali Dal or anything. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, I, I, it's true. I mean, the Congress is just as bad in this case. Um, <laughs> you know, what is Punjabi farming? Okay. I'm a Punjabi farmer. Okay. I have a lo- relatively larger average land holding. So what do I do? Do I grow right crops that are say terribly in need or high productivity or, you know, uh, do I, do I do innovative farming? No. What do I do in the winter, in the rubby crop, I grow wheat in the Kharif, I grow rice. Who do I sell it to? I sell it to the FCI, oh, right? Yeah. My, my power is free. My water is free, right? What do I make a lot of money doing it? No, but it's not a lot of work. There's no work behind it. There's no creativity. There's nothing that makes agriculture powerful and transformative. I'm simply a toll collector, right? Of Sarkari largesse. Great, great. Interesting. That's not farming. Right. Uh, so, so you, Sorry, you know, that was a bit of a rant. No, that's, uh, that, was, that was a very elaborative, uh, you know, way for, for listeners to understand, you know, what, what has really ailed, uh, you know, agriculture in India. But, but what do you think is, is the work around, you know, uh, uh, during the COVID times, uh, we've seen a uh, lot of initiatives coming from government uh, yep. and, you know, looks, looks like, yeah, absolutely. And looks like this, it's going to V-shape recovery, but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, do you think these reforms are enough? Uh, not only to help out uh, farmers, but also, you know, the eastern and, and, and the southern part of, of the country where a lot of farmers did not get benefited from, from Green Revolution. So, so to be clear, let, let's, let's talk about the different pieces of that. So you right. talk about the, the fact that the eastern and the southern, you know, regions didn't get the benefit of the Green Revolution. They didn't. But in some ways, in some places, that's a blessing. Okay, the most progressive farmers in the country are not the Green Revolution farmers; they're the Maharashtra horticulture farmers. Okay, they're they're the dairy farmers that you see in the West, in the South, in Gujarat. Right? Um, they're the the poultry farmers that took off as a revolution over the last forty or fifty years. The aquaculture farmers. So the Green Revolution was a blessing, but it was also a curse. It froze those farmers in time, and it turned them from being farmers to being subsidy collectors. Okay. So in, in a lot of ways, right, the, when, when you think about what progressive farming is in India, it has nothing to do with the Green Revolution. It has everything to do with the people that didn't benefit from that and had to become competitive and had to focus on what consumers actually wanted. Think about the grape sector in Maharashtra, right, that's doing massive agricultural exports and meeting global demand. That is innovative. The poultry sector is innovative, right? There, there are others, of course, right? The gherkin sector in northern Karnataka around Hubli and Shimoga, right? That's progressive. It's not the green revolution that really created the best farmers in India. Regarding what I think of the reforms, I think they are like full marks, right? It is a start. None of them were revolutionary. We've been talking about these reforms for two decades. I studied them as a grad student, right? In 2005, none of these things were revolutionary. And in fact, many of these acts were, you know, there were, there was a model APMC act created. There was a model, um, you know, a model contract farming act, but none of it was rammed down the throats of the States, right? All of it was basically, you know, we would love it if you could do this. Thank you very much. Right. I think what happened with COVID was that was the government recognized two things. One, that the status quo system had failed, right? The Monday system collapsed under COVID. And so you had a situation where farmers were on, literally on WhatsApp begging people to, to lift their produce, right? And, and a lot of people were doing good work trying to help them. But the status quo agricultural marketing system came to a screeching halt. And I think the government realized that if we're going to have disruptions like this, whether it's a COVID or flood or, or other acts of God, that this is not a system that is, that is resilient and it's not a system that is nimble. And I think the other side of it, right, and that we needed to create alternatives to it. And I think the other side of it is, you know, there's a saying, you never waste a good crisis, right? And, and I think the government understood that this was a moment where they could actually, where the macro environment and the threat to rural India was so high that the potential for reform was finally there. I, I, you can find interviews where I, people used to ask me, when is agricultural reform coming to India? And I said, just like in 1991, when, the gun, when there was a gun to the head of the status quo, right? right? Yeah. And, and that's when India reforms, right? We, we do nothing for decades and we do it all at once, right? right. right? Yeah. And so much like 1991, 
oh shit, there's no money, right? We're running out, right? We're going to have to go mortgage our gold. Very similarly, right? What happened in, in March and April was a recognition that, oh my God, the agricultural economy, which is the only part of the economy that's going to function, right? In, in, in this kind of shutdown environment could collapse. So let's do everything we can, right? To get it back on its feet. And this is one of the few spaces, I mean, for example, no one's going to invest in travel in India for the next few years. But here's a space that could actually take investment. If, if we only did these reforms that people have been talking about for three decades, that, by the right. way, we've created model acts for, okay? But right. we've never had the political will to ram them through. And I think what's so interesting about this moment, right, is, is you know, it's a very impressive thing that, that Prime Minister Modi has done. Right? And he's done other things that were this aggressive, right? Demonetization was this aggressive. 370 was this aggressive, right? He is using his majority. He's using his strength to do something that's been talked about for a long time, that's long overdue, right? But look, to his credit, he finally did it. His predecessors didn't, right? Okay. Um, in terms of, of, you know, do I like it? Do I not like it? I think the ECA reform is incomplete. I think the circuit breakers that were put on, where, where if, if subsidy prices rise 100% or if grain prices rise 50, that they can reinstitute the ECA, I think that's a terrible mistake. Um, and I think it, it will limit the level of investment. And I think they should get rid of it, modify it you know, a little bit later on if they can. I think the APMC reform is superb. I think it's amazing that they have decided to pass on Monday, to not do Monday cess collections. I expected that they were going to say, you can buy and sell anywhere, but you have to collect Monday cess. And I think the fact that they're not doing that is incredible and very, very positive. And I think the contract farming, um, you know, legislation is, let's see, I think contract farming is sometimes seen as, as a panacea and it's simply not a panacea. Right. It's, it's the world over. There is not that much contract farming. You see a lot of contract farming, right, for things like, you know, for example, poultry. Poultry contract farming is very much a norm everywhere in the world. But, you know, you're not going to see I don't think you're going to see contract farming in so many crops. Right. I think it's going to be more more select where it's relevant. But to have a law, right, that is finally a national law right, with good mechanisms of redressal for failure is, is a huge step. I think the biggest thing that needs to happen now, right, which I was just on a seminar with the Agri-Secretary, a webinar with the Agri-Secretary from Prishi Bhavan in Delhi, right, and I think the biggest thing that needs to come now is the Agri-Stack. And the biggest part of the Agri-Stack is that every farmer has a unique ID and every farmer's land, right, is digitally recognized, uncontested, Right? And then you can start doing things like leasing and contract farming and, and third-party farm management and all of these other things that have been held back because of a lack of data. Right? And, and to be clear, right, also the fact that 15% of the land in, in the country is contested. Right. Right? So you've got, you've got this situation in any village where, where you know, essentially there's endless land disputes and you've got a patvari who's essentially a rent-seeking local bureaucrat Right. That, that has control over these disputes. And so moving away from that system, right, to a system where, you know, where you've got a centralized database, right, where you've got clear land ownership and a system of legalized land leasing, not these kind of informal, right, approaches that exist right now, but protected leasing, huge right. game changer. That's probably the missing piece right now. Correct. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, in the last couple of months, we've had a huge investments coming from Facebook uh, into, into Reliance Geo and, uh, you know, and the, and the plans to have, you know, 5G network across across India and, and to, uh, you know, the, the rural areas. Do you think Reliance, uh, Future Retail and some of these companies can really make a big impact going forward? Look, I, I think they can. Um, you know, my hope is that they will, will use their, their platform, their pipeline as an open mechanism for lots of agri-tech startups and innovators to access farmers, right? I think, um, you know, there's a real risk that, that that will become a walled garden of sorts, um, you know, with, with all of the relevant kind of issues with that. But, you know, it does seem like they're, they're very keen to partner with agri-tech startups, 
And, um, you know, they, they are responsible for the huge leap in, in 4G and in rural smartphone penetration. And so I, I think they're going to become a critical actor in this ecosystem. Got it. And, uh, you know, Mark, I wanted to understand, you know, uh, uh, your, your investment thesis, what do you, what do you actually look for uh, an, an entrepreneur when he wants to, wants to build a, a company in this space? Do you, do you look for, for somebody who's worked in this, uh, in this sector or, or you know, or, or, or you're looking for somebody with a, with a fresh mindset who, who does not have any bias when he comes to building something which is, uh, which he, which he wants to see in aggregate space. Let me answer that question in a couple of different ways. I hope that together, holistically, it gives you what you're looking for. So the first thing that I would say is that our archetypal founder is an engineer who grew up in small town India. Engineer come MBA, who grew up in small town India. So the most successful founders we've had are all small town guys and gals who grew up with a connect to agriculture, Right. right? They grew up in Trishur, right? They grew up a hundred kilometers outside of Nagpur. I'm referring to specific people who are, are, you know, portfolio co-founders in in the Omnivore portfolio. Um, We have not had as much success with people that grew up in urban India that are urban by culture, right? So, so, you know, if you're from South Bombay, if you're from South Delhi, if you're from Koramangala, that's your world, right? You're probably very disconnected from the agricultural economy. But if you grew up in Hubli, okay, right. agricultural processing and farming was an hour away, right? You probably had, had people in your family that were involved in it, people in your world. And so our typical founders tend to be from, you know, district headquarters, smaller cities, larger towns, not necessarily that, that, that mom and dad had a farm, but definitely grandparents had a farm, right? That's, that's something that we've seen time and time again. In terms of their backgrounds, I would say we've seen some tremendous success with founders that had no background at all in agriculture. They had very strong digital pedigrees. They had very strong um, you know, exposure to, to you know, great corporates, right, or other startups, and then they've entered agritech. There is by no means um, a requirement that you've been working in agriculture. In fact, we've seen very few startups that were founded by people that had been, you know, in agribusiness, right? Very, very few. I think increasingly what's really interesting, if, if you look at sort of what I would characterize as wave one of agritech, wave two, and wave three, which is what we're in, Wave one was very idiosyncratic. The people that founded companies in the late 2000s and early 2010s, there was no way to generalize them. They were just crazy, okay? (laughs) There was like no money to be raised, right? These ideas were wild. There was no mobile smartphone penetration, and yet they were working on digital technologies, right? There's no way to generalize them. They, they had idiosyncratic backgrounds and, and a tremendous appetite for risk. And, and so, you know, there were some great investors and some great entrepreneurs there, right? Jutton Singh and SkyMed is a wonderful example of that, okay? Right? Wave two were largely people from very strong corporate pedigrees, okay? The founding team of Stellaps is a great example. Five dudes, 20 years plus each work X in the IT sector, senior level people from Wipro quitting in 2012 to launch a dairy tech startup, right? Very, very indicative, you know, um, Sriram Ravi, who, came, who founded Eruvaka, this very successful aquaculture IoT company, right? He had spent five years working in Taiwan, South Korea in the semiconductor space, Great. right? So this was kind of wave two founders were largely corporate. Um, and what's been really interesting are the wave three founders, Right. And these are people who have prior startup experience, which I think is even more valuable than prior corporate experience. Right. Right. right? So if you think about there's, you know, if you think about Bijak, right, right. Bijak, which is this incredible B2B commodity platform, Nukul and his co-founders had been part of an earlier agritech startup that had failed. Okay. Oh, and they had founded Bijak out of the ashes of that. Um, but they had, you know, they had seen startup zero to one kind of culture. And I think that was very helpful. Right. And, and we're seeing that 
you know, again and again and again in, in, the, in the portfolio companies we're backing right now. Many of the Intello co-founders had prior startup experience, right? Um, you know, if we look at some of the stuff that we've done, that we've done recently, right? There's a, there's a stealth startup that we're going to announce in a few weeks, right? Where that came out of Black Buck, basically. Right. So, so we're seeing, to be clear, we're still backing people that have corporate expertise. The founders of Aria, right, this post-harvest services platform, they were the senior agri-commodity financing leadership at ICICI Bank. Oh, interesting. So, so, but, but in terms of, you know, whether people have to have prior agri-experience, I would say no. My dream combination right, in any startup right now is someone that has some agri experience and someone that has, you know, either from a startup or from a corporate and someone that comes with incredible startup experience because that experience of, you know, growth and fundraising and, you know, pivoting, you know, and adjustments and, and growth hacking, that's just invaluable, right? And that's why agri-tech startups today are scaling much faster than they did five years ago or 10 years ago. That and the availability of capital has completely changed. Right, right. Absolutely. You know, things, things have really moved up in, in the last five years, especially. But uh, I want to understand what, what, what are the sort of metrics you look for uh, in, in a startup when you invest to them? And what is, the, what is your, uh, your check size when you look into invest into these startups? Um. So, so regarding our check size, you know, we are archetypal um, seed and, and series A investors, you know, typically we'll come in in a seed round. Sometimes we'll come in right in, in a, a pre-seed round that's, you know, effectively a seed round um, that's larger, you know, sometimes we'll come pre-A, sometimes A, less common, almost never in a B though, though that might happen with this fund. Our typical check size, it really ranges on the low side, half a million dollars at the very highest in a first check would be 4 million. So we have, you know, I like to say that we are sector specific and somewhat stage agnostic, right? We're, we're really trying to be uh, in most of the successful agri-tech startups in India. And so if that means coming into something a bit later that we didn't see potential in earlier, and, and coming in with a larger check, so be it. But we're also very happy to be the first check in a startup, and that's usually been, been the case for us. In terms of kind of what we look for, right, it's, it's, it's always three things, right? Same as almost every other VC. It's team, it's technology, and it's traction. Three Ts, right? We talked about team, so no need to go into that further. With respect to technology, we like things that have more IP, we like things that are more differentiated, right? You know, right now, everyone and their dog is sending me, you know, business of, okay, we're going to buy subsidy from farmer and sell to consumer. Okay, right. boss, well, guess what? Everyone and their dog is doing that. Right. So I'm more interested in things that, are, that have a, a technology hurdle, a technology barrier, than just kind of me too business models that will require infinite amounts of capital to compete and thrive, and there's going to be endless amounts of competition because the barriers to entry is nil. Um, and then finally, you know, traction. We, and, and this is, again, very variable by stage. We don't expect a lot of traction if on the rare occasion we're coming into a pre-seed, right? At a seed, we want to see the beginnings of product market fit. For a pre-A, we want to see product market fit. And for, you know, an A, we want to see serious growth that's happened on the basis of some of that product market fit. And obviously for a B, it's just about growth because product market fit is well established. So that, that varies, but we always want to see some good traction and, and proof of concept before we invest. Got it. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I recently had uh, Fabris Kinda, who's, who's only the founder of uh, 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 for, uh, was the founder of FJ Labs, and he talked about uh, that you know when you when you're trying to build a marketplace, especially you know when, when you look at agritech, you have Tudwala uh, and Tehard uh, who built a marketplace. But he said that you're supposed to look at uh, at building uh, the supply side first. But you know recently, Bill Bill Gurley, uh, who's, who's, a, who's a VC, uh, who talked about. Uh, that you know, supply aggregation is easier, but aggregating demand is is uh, is the most important thing. So you know, when 
when you're looking at agri-tech marketplaces, you know, what is your thesis behind, you know, what, 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 is the, what is the one thing that the founder is supposed to look at? Should he look at aggregating demand first or supply first? Look, I mean, I think you have to do supply first because without supply, you have no demand, right? right. I, I, tend to, I tend to think it's, you know, I think aggregating supply is easier, which is right. why most people start there. Right. Um, you know, but then eventually, obviously, you have to aggregate demand or you never have transactions. Right. Correct. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, what are the best uh, opportunities that you're seeing in agri-tech space, you know, which a, which a founder uh, can look at in, in the Indian ecosystem? You know, right now, you know, I, what, what are spaces that I think are interesting? So, so. When we look at the agri-tech sector, we generally say there are nine themes. I'm going to simplify them so I'm not talking forever, right? right? Some of the bigger themes are, you know, agri-B2B marketplaces, like you said, that's a big opportunity, right? Maybe not so much in just sub-Z, right, anymore, because that's been, you know, has a lot of players that have scaled there, but in other aspects of of agri-B2B marketplaces. Farmer platforms, that's again a huge opportunity, right? Getting lots of farmers, working with them in terms of inputs, outputs, machinery, financing, advisory. You know, Dehat's been very successful in that space. We have an earlier stage company there, Aqua Connect, focused on aquaculture, right? Those are, that's another theme that's quite big. Farm to consumer brands, right, is a space that's coming up very fast. There's an increasing interest by urban consumers in having things that, are, that come straight from the farm. So in our portfolio, Clover has been doing that very well. They have dark farms around cities, uh, basically modern greenhouses where produce is being grown. And they're, you know, bringing that into various um, B2C channels, including general trade, modern trade, food delivery, you know, direct to consumer, all of that. But there are many other players in that space. Country Delight's done that beautifully in milk. Fresh to Home is doing that in non-veg. Um, and a final theme that's been quite big is, is rural fintech, right? So how do we bring financial products to farmers? You know, we see that, that in our portfolio, Ardia is doing that in warehouse receipt financing. Gram Cover is doing that in InsureTech, right? There are other players like Samanathi that are quite big in rural fintech. Those are probably the four biggest themes where we see uh, ideas and capital flowing. Then there's a variety of deep tech that is happening, right? The application of big data, IoT, right? Um, sensors, satellites, drones, all of that into the agri-ecosystem. We've taken a couple of IoT bets, Fussel, which is bringing IoT and SaaS and algorithms into a premium horticulture. Um, another good example is Eruvaca, which is IoT for aquaculture, Right. There's uh, Intello Labs, which is essentially a post-harvest uh, quality stack for, for fresh produce, not just in India, but globally. Right. So there's a lot of deep tech. And then the final area, which is frankly a bit, I mean, I would tell entrepreneurs, this is the space where you will have no competition, okay, right. is, um, is, is the space of life sciences in India. Right. And, and, life, and, and by that, I mean agri-biotech innovative foods, but also novel agrochemicals, biologicals, right? Innovative seeds and genetics. There is no early stage pipeline here. Not with me, not with anyone. It is, it's almost like the dog that didn't bark. I can, I get in trouble for saying this. I get in trouble for saying lots of things, but you can find more Indian passport, passport holders doing innovative life sciences work in one kilometer of Boston than you can in the entire you know, in our republic. Right, right. And, it's shocking. Right. And, and that's a space where we would love to see more entrepreneurs, right? You know, if you come, if, if you've got a B-tech and biotech, right, you know, or you have good life sciences experience, come see us because we're going to be way more interested in you than two dudes who are like, um, yeah, we're going to buy from farmers and we're going to sell to traders, and it's just like, oh my God, if I see another business plan like this, I'm going to throw myself out a goddamn window. Right, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, when you talk about life sciences, I want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, companies like Beyond Meat, which is, uh, you know, plant-based meat substitutes and had a very successful IPO last year. And then I think a lot of- Best IPO in 20 years. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen a lot of companies which are coming up in US and uh, it's interesting that India, a uh, lot of Indians are vegetarian, you know, it's, we, we, we know as a country uh, where, uh, you know, uh, because of the cultural ethos and all, we are, are large population are, are vegetarian, but, but do you think, you know, companies like Beyond Meat and those sort of uh, com- uh, innovative ideas are also coming up in India? Or would come up in India going forward? So, so we're studying the space very carefully. We actually um, have participated very closely with the Good Food Institute, which is really the, the thought leadership in this space globally. And they have a wonderful team uh, in Mumbai led by Varun Deshpande and, and some, have some great people working for him. We're pretty passionate about the space. We ran a, a closed-door workshop with Excel um, about this in February uh, in Bangalore with lots of about 20 entrepreneurs from all over the country and a bunch of different fund managers and other ecosystem participants. So we are interested in this space. My perspective on it is there is a probably a very big opportunity for India to make uh, feedstocks and make uh, value added products and sell them all around the world, right? Because we're the largest producers of pulses and millets in the world. And those could be very innovative feedstocks as opposed to, you know, Beyond Meat and Impossible, which use a lot of pea protein, right? Which has become kind of a, a default feedstock. And, you know, and also India has a very good, you know, has good strengths in food processing, really good strengths in fermentation. We should be leveraging all of this. From a consumer perspective, I am a little bit more skeptical. I'm willing, I, I've got an open mind now. Earlier, I probably didn't. Um, you know, I think that the line between veg and non-veg in India is a brick wall. And I think if you were to ask your typical, you know, vegetarians in the U.S. are ethical vegetarians. They were not raised to be vegetarians. Their parents weren't vegetarians. They decided that for the sake of the environment or animal welfare or, or you know, uh, animal rights, right, that Correct. eating meat was cruel. And therefore, they wouldn't do it. But most of them grew up eating hamburgers and fried chicken. So when Impossible brings out an Impossible Burger, or when Beyond Meat brings out chicken nuggets, they're like, this is awesome. This is exactly what I want. Indian vegetarians are socio-religious vegetarians. Okay? They're not vegetarian because they're ethical. They might say, oh, killing animals is terrible. But most of them, right, are, are part of a multi-millennial tradition of vegetarianism, right? Their parents definitely did not eat meat, right? Their grandparents for sure as hell didn't eat meat. And they were raised to be horrified, right, of the taboo of meat. Okay. And so, you know, if you were to say to a Gujarati Jain, like my business partner, Janesh, who grew up in Ghatkopar, right, where even the subway is 100% vegetarian, okay? Right, right. Um, you know, do you want to try an Impossible Burger? Hell no, okay? No, they no. would vomit at the taste of an Impossible Burger. Most of, you know, you have hardcore pure veg people in India, they don't eat mushrooms because it's so meaty. Right, right. Okay, so, so, so basically those people are not the demographic, right? So then the question is, will the non-veg population of India right? The, say 60 to 70% of India that's non-veg, will they eat, you know, alternative protein? And I think the answer there is maybe, right? right? But it's complicated, right? Because for example, about 20% of India, right, is non-veg because of religion. And for them, eating meat is part of a cultural identity that is constantly shat upon, oh, especially right. these days. Right. Right. So if, you're, if you were to go into Baikala mm-hmm. or Mahim, right? or Nizamuddin, right? And say to a Muslim, right, you shouldn't eat meat, right? It's like, yeah, cool. Well, you tell me all the time that, I'm, that, that everything I do is wrong. So why am I going to listen to this, right? right? So it's, there's a cultural issue. Uh, there's a block there. So essentially when you're saying, right, and then there's an income issue. We have a large part of India, right, that is Dalit or Adivasi and are essentially meat eaters, but they don't have disposable income levels such that they're going to buy a processed product. So essentially, when you're saying, what is the market for alternative protein in India, it's probably going to be, right, there's two ways to look at it. One is it's probably going to be non-veg eating Hindus, okay, who want the flexibility, right, on Tuesdays or Thursdays or during Shravan, 
right? Or, right, so that's, that's where, if, if you're looking in the mass market, I could see this taking off. If you're thinking about the premium market, right, we, a, very, a person who knows a hell of a lot more about FMCG than I do, likes, who runs a very well-known FMCG startup, says that in India, you've got about five crore, 50 million consumers who are willing to experiment and innovate with food, who do not make food decisions based on what their wife wants or their parents want or, you know, their partner wants or whatever. And, and so that's another way of looking at the market, which is, you know, probably you're, you're talking about on the upside, right? You know, 10, 100 million people, probably on the downside, what we jokingly call the avocado startup universe. I think it's a term we borrowed from Bloom, right? Which is 10 million people who eat avocados in India, probably smaller, right? And if you were to average it, you could say, you know, about 50 million people in India might be interested in this. So is that a big enough TAM? Well, you know, it's a little smaller than Germany. Um, but, but probably, you know, if you're looking as an alternative protein startup at the Indian market, that's probably the market you're looking at. And then there are other opportunities to sell around the world. So we find the space interesting, but we think, you know, the whole thing about, oh, impossible meat, it's awesome, let's bring it to India. It's like um, your average American eats three hamburgers a week, okay? That's why impossible meat, right, got that crazy valuation and popped like that. Your average Indian, right, the, the default food setting of India is dal, chaval, sabzi, roti, right? right, right. So, right. you know, you're really, you're really dealing with a different food system and you can't just plug and play some of these ideas that work in the West. Right, very interesting. Yeah, I, so, I, I, again, another rant. No, absolutely. That, no, this is very interesting because I, I never looked at, uh, you know, food uh, like that. I, I was actually thinking that, you know, uh, and a plant-based alternative uh, source would really work out here in India. But you've really, uh, you know, opened my uh, eyes and made me look at a, at, a, at a, you know, different way of, uh, you know, food systems in India. And you, uh, it needs to be seen that, you know, such sort of uh, alternative protein sources would really work in India. Well, I mean, look, simple, simple counter, right? Simple counterpoint. How successful was Nutrella? It's been around for like 25 years, right? right? Do you eat Nutrella a lot? No, I don't. You know what it is, right? It's uh, soya yeah. granules, Yeah. right? They're kind of gross. Like no one really likes them, right? So it's not that, it's not that there's no precedent for, for plant-based protein in India. And then of course, we all know how much dal we eat, how much chana we eat, right? So... You know, so I think the question then becomes, I, I, by the way, I do think there might be an opportunity, there right. might be, to develop next generation plant-based proteins that are in non-meat, right, synthetic formats for the, you know, for the shakahari, for the vegetarian population, right? right? So you could imagine, right, you know, kind of a, a Nutrella 2.0 that doesn't suck, Okay. You could imagine, right. A, a, you know, you could imagine kind of like dumplings, the korma or whatever. Right. right. And, and that, that, that would be sort of protein packed, right. That would be super tasty and that everyone would want to put into, right. Into curries or what have you. So I, I could see, you know, you could imagine someone developing, right. Um, you know, uh, kind of uh, veg kebabs, right, that, that are just chock full of protein, but that no one would ever mistake for a shami kebab, right, or a galuti kebab or whatever. Right. But, but you need a sort of set, you would, you would definitely need a separate brand, and it would, you would, it would have to be absolutely, it could not be confused for, for something that was non-veg. Right, right. Yeah, needs to be seen in future, you know, 10 years down the line, you know, was it a, a big opportunity here in India? Uh, Maga, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Um, so my favorite business book of, of all time is, you know, it's not actually a um, kind of a typical uh, business book insofar as, you know, uh, good to great or, or what have you. Uh, it's actually a business history book called Creative Capital. And it was written, um, I guess, about over a decade ago uh, by Spencer Ante. And it's the history of George Dorio. And George Dorio was essentially the father of venture capital in the US. He was, a, he was born in France. He served in their military. At some point, he 
uh, went to Harvard Business School, taught there, then served in the U.S. military, leading kind of the equivalent of DARPA, the innovation lab during World War II. And after World War II, founded really the first venture capital fund in the U.S., Right. So he was there at the beginning. And it's just this fascinating history of the birth of VC in the United States. And I think it's very interesting and relevant because while in some ways the Indian VC ecosystem emulates Silicon Valley, oftentimes yeah. in unhealthy ways, you know, we're also we're also looking at really the birth of VC here. It's only been really, you know, kind of two decades, but really more like 15 years. Right. And and so I think this book definitely is something that influences me and that everyone should read. Got it. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you could go back in time when you started, uh, you know, working on Omni, what, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I would have started it like three years later. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think sometimes being a pioneer is awesome and amazing. Right. And, and sometimes it's freaking miserable, right? And, and you're just too early. Right. Like I definitely see a lot of startups that when I look at them, right, I'm like, you are too early. I will wait a couple of years and someone's going to do what you're doing in a different environment and it's going to work. Right. And I think the truth is, right, we were pioneers. Some of the stuff that we backed did really well, but we also backed stuff that was more like SME than true startup because, you know, it wasn't as clear in those days what was what. And so if you if you were to ask me, I would have been like, yeah, I wish I'd started Omnivore in 2014. You know, I wish I, I wish my first year of investment had been maybe 2013, but, but definitely, you know, we were two or three years out of the gate too soon. Um, but you know something, I maybe, maybe if that was the case, we wouldn't have been able to raise the way we did. And maybe, you know, I wouldn't have been in a place where I was so ready to, to leave corporate life and do this. So, um, you know, there's only so much you can look back. <laughs> Correct, correct. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Um, I'm definitely uh, a WhatsApp monster. I really live, I, I, have, I have a personal WhatsApp account, I have a business WhatsApp account. I, I live my life on WhatsApp. I do not, um, I don't really use Zoom very much. Uh, okay. I, I know it's a better business tool, but I just find that, that WhatsApp is is... It's what I wake up to. It's what I go to sleep to. That sounds a bit depressing, honestly. Um, but but it's definitely it's 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 the uh, it's the app that rules my life right now. Got it. And uh, 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 Mark, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Omnivore? Um, so go on the Omnivore website. Um, that's a really easy way. The other way is to just write me on on LinkedIn. Um, I I try to make myself as accessible as possible. I will try to always give you a response. It might be like not interested, but um, you know, if it's a serious thing, if it's a good fit, then, then we're always happy to look. One thing is that we are entirely focused at Omnivore on agriculture and food. So if you have a wonderful healthcare idea, please don't send it to me. Hospitality, don't send it to me. I get a lot of stuff that I shouldn't get if someone would merely take two seconds to research us and realize that we don't do deals in that space. Correct, yeah. So yeah, agri agri agriculture and food, uh, you know, tech companies, uh, tech founders should, should reach out to you. Uh, we'll put out in the show notes. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to uh, speaking to me. I really enjoyed uh, your uh, thoughts uh, and uh, your ideas about, about agri-tech space in, here in India. Thank you very much. I, I, it was a pleasure being here and uh, I look forward to, uh, to engaging with you in the future. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.